Welcome back, everyone. This is Josh from Life on Side B, and thanks for joining us for episode four of season two on thriving instead of surviving. And today, Mary is going to be interviewing Dr. Julia Sadusky on mental health and loneliness. The question is, how do I start to take steps to address what I'm feeling and know that I'm worth a life that I can thrive in. Dr. Sadesky is going to be sharing with us some of the research she's done on loneliness among gay celibate Christians and the relationship between loneliness and mental health. And what steps can we take to improve our mental health? All this and more is coming up on the episode. So let's go ahead and... Are you ready to go? Yep. All right. The doctor's given her approval. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, fellow bees, and welcome back to the Life on Side B podcast. I'm your host for today, Mary, and this is supposed to be airing in February, uh, shortly after Valentine's Day. So today, uh, joining with, with me is Dr. Julia Sadusky. Uh, Dr. Julia Sadusky is a clinical psychologist whose clinical and research focus is in sexual and gender identity. She also serves as a youth and ministry educator, offering trainings and consultations on mission life, ministry wellness, and the intersection of sexuality, gender, and theology. Dr. Sadusky obtained a bachelor's degree in psychology from Ave Maria University and completed her doctorate in clinical psychology at Regent University. At Regent, her research experiences and clinical training focused primarily on the study of subject of sexual and gender identity. Her dissertation focused on the experience of loneliness in Christian sexual minorities who have committed to celibacy, which, again, I think is very relevant, having uh, Valentine's Day just recently. Uh, Dr. Sigdusky completed her doctoral internship at Biola University Counseling Center in La Miranda, California, offering individual group and family therapy and serves as a liaison to the LGBT group on Biola's campus. She currently works as a psychologist at ED Care in Denver, Colorado. Uh, recent publications include Approaching Gender Dysphoria from Grove Ethics and A Christian View of Sex Reassignment Surgery and Hormone Therapy from the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And she and Dr. Mark Yarhouse recently contributed to four View books titled Understanding Transgender Identities, published through Baker Academic, uh, which I saw on Powell's bookshelves, which was exciting for me, and are currently working on a book titled Emerging Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth, which is forthcoming from Brazos Press in August of 2020. So keep, uh, keep a lookout for that. Dr. Sadusky is also a fellow research of the a research fellow of the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute in Wheaton, Illinois, and an advisor to Preston Sprinkle's Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. So after that very impressive CV, welcome Dr. Julia Sadusky. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. Yeah. So um, as we ask all of our guests, uh, can you tell us how you identify and what brought you to focus specifically on issues uh, related to sexual sexual identity among Christians? Sure. Yes. So I identify as heterosexual cisgender female. Um, I am Roman Catholic as well. So that can give you a sense of my religious background, I guess. 
Um, awesome. Both of us Catholics. <laughs> great. Coming together. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes. Um, so yeah, as far as how to, I came to focus on sexual identity among Christians, uh, you know, I would say it all started when I was in college. Uh, I went to a small liberal arts Catholic college, uh, as you mentioned, in Florida, Ave Maria University. And there I studied uh, theology of the body. So a series of lectures by Pope John Paul II, really just talking about the human experience and especially as it relates to us being sexual beings and what and what does that mean and how do we live a life that glorifies God in and through our bodies and in and through our sexuality. So I think at that time I was really wrestling with, you know, there's a lot of ways to integrate sexuality in the person and I was definitely compelled by theology of the body. Um, and right. part of that is that traditional sexual ethic. And it it compelled me, but it ultimately convinced me. Uh, you know, generally that sounds beautiful. And specifically for me, it's costly and life-giving. And, you know, at that same time, a close family member came out to me and he was wrestling with questions like, am I going to hell because I experienced same-sex attraction? Um, and I thought at the time, you know, the answer, is, answer to that is no. But I had no robust theology to offer him. And so I kind of went back to theology of the body then to explore more. How can I read this for him, with him? Um, and, and truthfully, his questions just became my own. And so I then came across Mark Garhouse's work. And I was looking at grad programs to study psychology and was fascinated by the research he was doing at the intersection of faith and sexuality and thought, hey, I got to figure this out for my family member. I want to figure this out for myself. And ultimately, that started my journey of grad school, um, focusing on these issues. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing, honestly, to me how uh, different members of our family or our faith community can just pull us into these and just discovering God more through that. So that's incredible, um, especially now that you're working with Mark Yarhouse, who I think at least a few bees recognize that name from his uh, work. So I'm excited, honestly, for your forthcoming book. Um, do you want to talk more about that really briefly? Yes. Well, I mean, I'll say, you know, I really went to Regent to study uh, sexuality and faith and the intersection of that. And, you know, just had never met anybody navigating gender identity and faith that I knew of <laughs> before then. Yeah. And it was very quickly after I got there that Mark came out with the book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. And, and I just remember being so intrigued and curious and reading the book and wanting to understand it more. And then my second year, you know, he was my supervisor. And so suddenly people were coming to see me as, as clients, really in the hopes of getting his supervision over their cases. And very quickly, most of the people I was working with were navigating gender identity and faith. And so out of that, uh, you know, we started doing more research and I worked a lot more clinically with uh, transgender Christians and also people just kind of across the spectrum of gender identities. And so our book is really an effort to locate the current cultural landscape. You know, what are we seeing? How do we make sense of emerging gender identities in young people, agender, bigender, gender fluid, for instance? And how do we critically engage as Christians um, in formal ministry and also informally in, in how we engage with one another? around this space. There's a lot of young people today in our faith communities who are very astute in watching how the church responds to those navigating gender identity. Um, and I think we as Christians have really uh, 
made some pretty critical mistakes in how we do ministry and relationships in this space. And so the book is an effort to offer kind of not so much a theological explanation of how we think about gender identity as Christians, but how do we actually take the theology we know and love and apply it to the real people we want to accompany? So that's what I would say about that. Yeah, there's an important effort to be made in trying to reach people where they're at, definitely. Yes. Um, so going on to that topic, uh, so your doctoral dis uh, dissertation, which you recently gave, congrats, by the way, on becoming a doctor. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so your doctoral dissertation focused on loneliness among celibate gay Christians, of which I definitely relate to, and I'm sure a lot of our fellow listeners relate to as well. So could you tell us a little bit about your research there? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So it, you know, I did a qualitative research study, which just means interviews asking open-ended questions of celibate gay Christians. So 14 individuals. Uh, who experienced same-sex sexuality. So some did identify as LGB and others did not. Uh, but either way, they were all navigating faith and sexuality and pursuing celibacy. Um, and that research really came out of clinical work, sitting with teens especially who were uh, exploring sexuality and faith. And the number one thing I kept hearing from them was, my theology cannot be this traditional sexual ethic. It just can't because I'll be lonely forever and I'll be miserable. And that got me wondering, you know, is this lack of sexual intercourse a death sentence? I mean, does that mean a person will be lonely and miserable forever? Uh, that's an important question. <laughs> and, um, you know, got to looking at uh, the research and there just wasn't much. I mean, there were a lot of ideas and a lot of people who would say, absolutely, uh, celibacy is a death sentence. And so I thought, well, why don't we ask that empirical question? Um, so, you know, I did write a summary on Spiritual Friendship's blog about it, but I do want to give you just some highlights here. Um, yeah. So all of the people in the study had committed to celibacy five or more years ago. I really wanted to see people who had been doing this for a little bit uh, rather than kind of what we're seeing now, which is people trying on different pathways. And so I just wanted to learn from people who'd been doing this a little while. Um, so within the study, there were four questions I asked, you know, what things contributed to your decision to pursue celibacy? Um, do celibate gay Christians or uh, sexual minorities who commit to this experience loneliness as of a result of their decision to forego same-sex sexual relationships? So are they attributing it to their celibacy as to why they feel lonely? Um, what are the impacts of loneliness for those who are talking about it? And what coping skills have people found to, to manage loneliness? And what have they found to be most helpful? Um, you know, I, I just think that all of these things are questions that for some of us, it's like we would love to hear from more people. How are they doing this? What's, what's making it hard? What's making it more manageable? And so that was really what I looked at. Um, I can tell you a little bit about the findings now, you know, for yes, reasons, yeah, reasons people pursue celibacy, um, personal faith, obviously, uh, how a person views celibacy, if they see it as, for instance, a calling, um, or if they see it as a requirement from their faith community, uh, those are all factors there, um, social influences. So people in their life said to them, you know, this is the pathway for you. Um, in light of your Christian faith, and then certainly interpretation of scripture. So how people actually understood texts in scripture about marriage and sexuality. Um, so those were kinds of the reasons. Interestingly, for that 
question though, most people did not have mentors, spiritual directors, ministry groups, and role models weighing in on their decision, which I think mm. speaks to the isolation um, that many of them felt in figuring out a pathway forward, that there wasn't a ton of support and resourcing for them. Even I think, you know, only one person said, well, I read this book <laughs> by Wes Hill. I mean, <laughs> there wasn't, there's not much for, for people trying to figure out yeah. what, what pathway do I want to take? So that was, that was a piece of what we found, you know, a, a second question that we asked about was, you know, are they making the attribution that their loneliness is a result of their celibacy? Um, we know that loneliness is a universal experience. Um, and we also know from research that having an intimate partner is a buffer against uh, the negative impacts of loneliness. So, you know, for my study, all but one of the people interviewed said, yes, my loneliness is a part in part due to my celibacy. Now, interestingly here, it wasn't so much I'm not having sex that they were saying is yeah. the reason they're lonely. They're saying, I don't have intimate relationships. I don't have companionship right. in life. And, and certainly, you know, some people talked about sexual intimacy or at least physical intimacy being a part of that. Um, but the common theme that kept coming up was that being celibate just made forming community, in, especially in America and faith-based communities, more difficult. There was a lack of a societal and a faith-based structure for their celibacy, meaning that they had these kind of multiple layers. Okay, I'm single, I'm a sexual minority, and I'm celibate. And, you know, in Protestant circles, especially, there's not a, a vision of celibacy that makes people think, I want to sign up for that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what so, are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, I, right. There was a draft. I was selected. I had to sign my name and everything. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah so, so they're kind of saying, you know, we, we can't get access to the things that many other people in our faith communities have that would help with loneliness. Um, and so it's not so much the loneliness, even that's the problem. It's what do we do with it? I, one person said, you know, I'm really sick of being the celibate gay Christian at the Bible study who's once again, I'm lonely. Once again, I'm lonely. And, and just right. not knowing what else to do with that. Um, so, yeah. And, and then I'll say to, you know, what are the aspects of their life impacted by loneliness? That was the third question. You know, you touched on everything you could think of, universal impacts, social impacts, psychological kind of cognitive and emotional impacts, physical impacts, exhaustion, difficulty sleeping and spiritual impacts, um, which, you know, in, I'll share one quote here. One person said, you know, I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. I wasn't straight. I wasn't gay. I wasn't married. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't. And, and just feeling like there was always this lack of belonging that they couldn't, couldn't figure out how to manage. Um, and then, you know, finally, the last research question had to do with how do we actually cope? Uh, what's helpful, what's not. When it came to helpful, you know, kind of the general things you think of, enjoyable activities, reading, volunteering, um, chores, travel, uh, creative expression uh, through art, you know, poetry, journaling, um, but then cognitive coping. So reframing my circumstances, uh, you know, seeing the, the gift and you know, one person said, I can travel and I can do that and I can pick people to do that with. I don't have a kind of nuclear family I'm set with no matter what we're going through, but I can kind of handpick my family of choice um, using gratitude to call to the mind what they appreciate in their life, focusing on the present moment as opposed to kind of 
looking into the future 20, 30 years from now, where will I be? Who will be there with me? What will things be like if I'm sick? But really staying present and focusing on my current needs and the needs of other people um, and serving out of that place. And then the, the most noteworthy, I think, was getting insight into triggers of loneliness. Like, what is it that brings this on? How can I predict these and have more of a say in how I manage it over time, becoming more of an expert on my experience of it? Right. And, and I thought that was, that was really profound. And, and then as far as unhelpful, you know, some of the things you would expect, compulsive behaviors of a lot of kinds, overeating, uh, pornography use, masturbation, excessive shopping, substance abuse, and then unhelpful thoughts, ruminating, negative self-talk, um, and self-harm certainly uh, was a piece of it for uh, one or two people. So, you know, that's complicated because if you're using coping skills like for instance, pornography or compulsive sexual behaviors for people who many of them felt like that was that too was a violation of their values. It's reinforcing um, the isolation and, and shame that drives them away from people that could ultimately help with the loneliness. Um, so let me stop there. And, and that's just a little <laughs> bit about the study. There's a lot there. Yeah, no, that is a lot to unpack and we'll get to all of it. But um, jumping into uh, my most my next and probably the most important question that I'm sure fellow side beers would be delighted to hear from you. Uh, what yeah. advice would you give to side B Christians who want to take steps to improve their mental health, especially for people who have nobody else to rely on? I'm reminded of Matthew 12, um, mm. where the, uh, the story where Jesus is speaking to the crowd and somebody comes up and says, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus says, these are my mother and brothers, whoever does the will of my father. But if you don't have that nuclear family or you maybe don't even have a faith community that is willing or able to reach out to you and understand you, um, yeah. what, what advice would you have in terms of improving your own mental health? Yes. Well, you know, the biggest thing for for me and what people in that study shared with me is that they needed people to know them. You know, one as a Christian, people who know them and value them as a Christian, people who know them as same-sex attracted or as navigating sexuality and faith or LGB, whatever you, you say, and um, people who know them as both <laughs> and can tolerate <laughs> and not just tolerate, but really receive and delight in, in those parts of of a person, um, they need to, to be able to be known. And, and part of that is disclosure to save people. And sometimes they think, well, I can't have that in my faith community today. You know, well, well, where can I have that? Because if we don't have people who know us, we get the message that we're intolerable and it makes it hard to tolerate ourselves. Um, so that's a big piece of it. I mean, uh, second, Lee, and I think flowing from that is giving us permission to name shame. Um, so that sense that I am bad because of some aspect of, of what I experience. Um, and through trial and error, certainly find ways to release, alleviate that shame. If you keep doing things out of a place of shame that make it worse, we've got to figure out what alleviates it, what releases it. And part of that really is naming it with people who can hear it. You know, I feel like this part of me is disgusting or this part of me is something I ought to hide. Well, that, that makes it really hard to live a life that you can thrive in. Um, 
And, and, you know, we can get so stirred up by how other people see us, but we sometimes forget that the way we see ourselves when we look in the mirror is actually most important. And working on that is, is really necessary. Um, thirdly, I'd say talk about crushes. <laughs> Bring your sexual desires. <laughs> sexual desires are a part of being human. Um, bring them close to you, bring them close to God, see what and who God is leading you towards when you get in touch with these desires. If you hold them at arm's length or lock them away somewhere, they will come out sideways in less helpful ways. Um, and so sometimes we think, I don't want to bring it close because I don't know what will happen then. I don't know what I'll do with it. Well, let's talk about it. Let's share about it. One of the things somebody in my research shared with me is the best, most helpful things people do is let them talk about the people they have a crush on. <laughs> that just yeah. is a game changer. Um, and, and then finally, you know, address mental health concerns. Everything that you experience as distress is not necessarily a result of being attracted to the same sex. I think sometimes the message has been, oh, you're always going to be depressed or anxious because by the virtue of the attractions you have. Um, I think that's an old narrative, unfortunate one that's passed through Christian communities. And, you know, the newer narrative is that if you're committed to a traditional sexual ethic, you will be miserable, you will be distressed, you will not thrive. And certainly the state in life does complicate that process of bridging gaps to community, coping with life. But if we come to believe that a state in life is the cause of our concerns, we will not address them. We put that locus of control outside of us. We say the power lies in something else, somebody else, and this is being done to me. I can't do anything about it. There are lots of things in life we have no control over, <laughs> certainly. Um, <laughs> and uh, the question is, how do, I, how do I start to take steps to address what I'm feeling and know that I'm worth a life that I can thrive in. Um, you know, when I get invested in misery, how do I challenge the notion that the more I suffer, the more virtuous I become? Because there is virtue in suffering <laughs> and there's virtue in alleviating suffering. Jesus himself let people carry the cross with him. And he was not less virtuous because he asked Simon the Cyrenian for help. And so if you share your grief about your life, your pain with God and other people, God can handle the full range of our emotions, even if it includes being mad at him. <laughs> and, uh, and also, you know, figuring out how to find uh, people in your life that you can talk to about what it's really like instead of what you feel like it needs to be like to keep other people uh, intact. Wow. If this was a Christian poetry slam, everyone would be snapping their fingers. That was, <laughs> but you're so right. And especially I, I was struck by what you said about Jesus um, help, having other people help him carry his cross up Calvary and mm. that you hit the nail on the head. I can't, um, I can't put it any better than that. That is, that is really profound. Um, which is why I'm so glad you're here on the mm. podcast with us. Um, so in regards to finding help and finding community, um, many side B Christians do have a hard time finding, especially in terms of mental health, like a counselor or therapist. Friends and community are definitely important, but they can't offer all of the tools that you know uh, licensed people can, licensed counselors sure. and therapists can, um, and especially ones who 
can recognize and like you said not just tolerate but accept their unique intersection of faith and sexuality one of the reasons why i tend to just go to the confessional as a catholic is yeah. because at least the priest will understand that my faith is important enough that i don't want to give that up mm. and if there's a bad reaction which there sometimes is from the occasional catholic priest sure they they cannot uh go and tell anybody else about it it's confined to the confessional and they are sworn to secrecy about it and i can you know shop around for a priest is the wrong term but you know sometimes it ends up being like that absolutely um, right so do you have any thoughts or advice for side b christians on how they might be able to find a good counselor Yes. So this is an immense challenge. I mean, you know this, other people know this. There are so many layers of complexity there um, that get to be a barrier really to getting our needs met. So, you know, one thing I always tell people is personally, I would take a competent secular therapist over an incompetent Christian therapist. And what I mean by that is there is no perfect therapist, right? <laughs> I mean, I've been to therapy. <laughs> I've been to a Christian therapist. It did not mean that there were never times she misunderstood my spirituality. Um, no mm, one, yep. not, not even my own family, who shares a lot of my beliefs can perfectly understand and appreciate my experience of sexuality and faith and both. So if there's this fear uh, that I'll be misunderstood, right? That's a barrier. I don't want to be misunderstood by my therapist. Please expect misunderstanding in therapy. <laughs> um, <laughs> the opportunity, though, uh, is for you to offer perspective to a therapist about who you are, helping them understand your story, your experience, and especially your values. Now, some therapists, this is the caveat, some are unwilling to learn about, understand, and support our values. So this is exactly why it might not be acceptable to you to go get a secular therapist, because let's be honest, some of you have gone that route and been very disappointed because you spend your sessions defending, teaching, um, and I don't think anybody should pay money to teach somebody about their faith or defend their faith, if that's all <laughs> that it is. Um, so I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> but a competent therapist who's secular or Christian will need to be told what you need at times. Here's the thing though, if they cannot or won't support and honor your values, do not go back. You are paying for something to help you. And if it's not, don't go. You are worthy of good therapy. Um, and you know, if people see your deeply held convictions as repressive at the root, or they see your precious and unique experience of sexuality as something to be held at arm's length, um, which I would say those are probably the two extremes, uh, seek somebody else. Now, advice on finding a good counselor. Um, tell them at the start, if you're navigating faith and same-sex sexuality, is if these are important parts of your story, tell them and ask them, are they willing to hold both? Or will their biases make it hard for them to help you? Because you want to know that. You're, you deserve to know that. And if you feel pushed by a therapist to unpack your values, okay, and it feels that they have an agenda for that, say something right then. <laughs> because there are times where I push my clients to unpack their va values, and I have the exact same ones. I just want to help them integrate this perspective, not challenge it. <laughs> Other times, though, I am challenging it. And especially if I see it as something that could be dangerous for them. Uh, but either way, 
it's important that I'm not challenging it because I have an agenda for them that they don't have for themselves. So if a therapist won't work with you without a fixed outcome, you might be better off shopping around. Um, so, so shop around. That's one thing I would say. I would meet with three different therapists and meet for a consult and tell them that you're looking for others as well. Um, there's no better way to figure out a good fit than to try three different people and say, oh, I like this. I don't like this. Oh, I'll go and give this one a shot. Um, ask friends for options of good therapists, secular and Christian, and try both. You might be surprised. Um, if you find yourself with mental health concerns that are pretty severe, you know, if you're mulling over suicide, if you're self-harming, go to a therapist. I don't care who they are. Ask them to treat <laughs> those things and don't wait. Um, and just tell them if there's things you don't want to go into because you don't know that they'll value them, tell them that. I'm not ready to go and talk about my values around that. I just want you to treat my depression and anxiety. <laughs> uh, can you do that? Um, I recommend looking for therapists who are available via Skype. Uh, if you're in a more rural area, if that's better than nothing. Um, and if you can't get into therapy right away, but you are experiencing things that are making life really hard, try medication. Actually, all of the research says that the best approach to addressing mental health concerns is a combination of therapy and medication. Something is always better than nothing. So try that. Um, and, and then I would say, you know, if money is a barrier, some people have found that their faith community, family will support them in therapy financially. Also, talk to your therapist. Even if there's not a sliding scale, it never hurts to ask. Um, and if a therapist cannot adjust a rate, they'll tell you they can't. But if they can, let them because your mental health is worth that. Um, and finally, I'll say, you know, just don't give up <laughs> because it's easy to say because there is a lot of pain going to professionals who have hurt you. Um, and with the, you know, sexual orientation change efforts and the way therapy has done great harm on sexual minorities. I do not, uh, you know, I totally get why people would not go back to a therapist ever again. But I will say that I've been blessed and grateful uh, for the many brave people who came in to see me after horrific experiences with other therapists. And I know that we've both left those new therapy experiences glad they tried again. So, you know, in the rooms of AA and NA, they say, don't quit before the miracle happens. And I think that's true. Um, good therapy is life-changing and you are worth having a life you can thrive in. And therapy is pretty integral in doing that for all of us. Wow. That is, I mean, obviously you have such a long CV that I was expecting some profound truth to come out of your lips, but wow. Uh, <laughs> So that's so useful for me, too, because as someone who, you know, knew that um, knew I, that I had clinical depression long before I realized um, that I was lesbian or had gender dysphoria of any sort, um, yeah. this was something that I had to tackle. Um, and so uh, I've mostly asked my questions, but since we ha do have a little bit more time, I was wondering if I could ask you a question like kind of Catholic to Catholic or impart sure. something that struck me. So I was at um, Adoration last night uh, mm. for uh, those Christians and bees who are not Catholic. Let me explain. Adoration is where we present the Blessed Eucharist, who we believe is the real body of Christ uh, present in the Eucharist itself, the um, the host. and we 
put it um, out for everyone and we take time to pray with God there in our midst, with Jesus in our midst. Um, and it sort of struck me how interesting it was that here is the miracle of transubstantiation, the bread becoming uh, the body of Christ, and how humbling that's got to be to know that you are an omnipresent being, omniscient, all-powerful being, being placed in this host to be consumed by mm. everyone. And I was sort of relating that to my own gender dysphoria in the sense that I may feel something, but I am in the body of something else. And that is my reality now and just kind of uniting that suffering. And I was wondering if you had ever thought of it that way, because I was really mm. struck by that last night at adoration. Well, what a beautiful, beautiful encounter with God, right? Um, and a beautiful way to unite suffering to Christ. And, you know, I think with all suffering, you know, we naturally ask, why me? And we naturally ask, like, how can I alleviate this? And, and those are important questions. Um, and, and yet we oftentimes say, you know, who is this God that he would ask us to suffer in this way? And, you know, in some of the worst ways, I mean, gender dysphoria to me is just one of the most painful experiences because we take our body everywhere. It's it's same with our sexuality. We take it everywhere. And when there's distress around that, uh, it's hard. And yet I, I do think there's great beauty and a lesson to be learned in, in our Savior in that he did too. <laughs> he suffered, he took on this body, and it had to feel <laughs> uncomfortable for him um, in right. the sense that he was God. And to be limited by a human body is just To be subjected rough. to pain. Yes, yeah. all of those things. And, and he embraced it. I mean, he didn't begrudgingly take it on and say, oh, like, I'm so sick of you people. I have to do this for you. I mean, he really. It's human time. The, right, right. Like, but that's, <laughs> that's the love of our God. Like, he, he is ready to enter in so that when we suffer, we know that we are not the first to experience the depth because he did it and he didn't have to. And I would not choose my suffering if I had a choice. So um, there's something yeah. about about his love for us. It's really profound. But I, I think, you know, one of the things that you don't often hear about with celibacy and, and something that people in my study spoke about and, and you're speaking about is that there is an opportunity here in our suffering and our enduring experiences to encounter more powerfully than those who live a life of comfort um, the mysteries of who our God is and, and what it means that, of what he did for us. So one of the things that somebody kept saying was, you know, if you want to talk about the spiritual impacts of my celibacy, I feel like I am one with God. I'm his spouse. We are doing life together. And I, I get pissed at him from time to time and I tell him about it. And in this case, you know, it was in adoration. Uh, I tell him about it. I let him have it. Yeah. And also uh, my spouse gets me. Like he gets what I'm going through and he wants to do it with me. And he's not leaving me to figure it out alone. In fact, he's done it already and he's ready to help me walk this out in a way that's joyful and peaceful and hard. Um, and as long as we can always name the ways it's hard and also be willing to receive the peace and the joy that does come from a life in Christ, you know, we're going to be okay. <laughs> all of us. Yeah. Um, but but I think, you know, I, I love that you're able to share that and, and also, you know, find moments of encounter with God 
that don't hinge on a partner. They don't hinge on, you know, a book club. They don't hinge on a small group. It's just you and him. Um, and the more we find those ways, I think, I think the more we'll be able to make it. Yeah, definitely. So going back to, I know we're still off track here, but, um, this questions keep popping up in my mind and I want to just go for it. I just want to ask. Um, so I was wondering, subjecting yourself to the mortifying ordeal of being known, because again, going back to the experience of loneliness, um, you can unite your suffering to God, definitely. And that's always what we try and do and what I try and do in my life. But um, what do you think it means, the fact that, I guess that we're asking more of a natural law question here, natural theology law question, but what do you think it means that we experience loneliness and that we are such social beings for like how God intended us to be and how we might share that with others? Yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times it's not so much the loneliness that's the problem. I mean, loneliness is like anger. It gets a bad rap. We say, I don't want to be angry because I don't want to hurt somebody. I don't want to be lonely because I'll be miserable. It's like, well, you can do a lot of good with anger. Martin Luther King Jr., I'm really glad he was angry (laughs) at the way our society (laughs) was. Um, and, 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 and same thing with loneliness. I mean, this is a evolutionary (laughs) capacity we have, uh, to feel this gap that drives us towards connection. I mean, sometimes loneliness feels like you're underwater and you've got to breathe. Um, and what is it underwater? We get propelled up by our need to breathe. Loneliness can be like that for us. It's a cue. It's a non-moral reality. It's not a deficit in me. It just means I need connection. And if we make a lot more meaning out of it, we're going to be miserable. Because if we think of our loneliness as a sign that we have some flaw, a sign that we're not likable, a sign that nobody wants to be around us, then we are not going to go connect with somebody out of that place, which is the very thing that helps with loneliness. Now, Sometimes we think only of social uh, connection as, as the way to do that, but loneliness can also be alleviated by connecting to ourself. Um, that's why a lot of the coping people found to be helpful didn't involve other people. I mean, it's what you described, going to adoration, private prayer, listening to worship, journaling, art. I mean, these things that connect us to ourselves and other people. Because solitude is actually quite healthy for humans. Um, loneliness... Uh, you know, it doesn't mean just being alone. Uh, that's not why we get upset about it. It really is the meaning we make out of it. And then how much we feel like we can address it in a way that's helpful for us. So if I feel like I can't do anything about it, that's when it's really going to become more chronic and more debilitating for me. Um, so I, I think we don't have to be ashamed of loneliness. We, we can see it as a data point telling us we need some type of connection and trust that through trial and error, you will find ways to manage it. You are capable of that. You can have mastery over loneliness, like people can have mastery over anger. They can have mastery over sexual impulses. I mean, we have this great capacity as humans to have self-mastery. And the, the more we believe the lie that we can't, I think the more futile we'll feel it in our life and, and less wanting um, to really live it. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else that you would like to share maybe about your upcoming book or anything in particular, like maybe a particular book that you enjoyed working on a lot? Mm. Yes. Well, I think, you know, the biggest thing that 
propelled, I think, this book project um, that Mark and I have been working on is we have sat with person after person. I mean, sexual minorities, gender minorities, you name it, people of faith, non-Christians who are trying to figure out how to do life. I mean, it's as simple as that. They're putting one foot in front of the other, like you and me. We're all trying to figure this thing out. Thankfully, uh, many of us do have the support of a faith to make sense of this world, make sense of suffering. But there is a real need for Christians to acknowledge the way we have failed one another in the topics of sexuality and gender and in how we actually accompany one another in this space. I mean, if we see other people as someone to be pitied, somebody to talk at, somebody to teach about their experience, we miss the mark. Most of us just desperately need somebody to just sit with us in our pain. Um, I'm always struck as a therapist that the, the most valuable thing I can give people is my presence and my acknowledgement that that is rough. <laughs> Not not necessarily even making sense out of it, not, not, not finding a path forward. I mean, we do that ourselves as humans once we get to the place where we can acknowledge hardship, pain, suffering, and not try to sugarcoat it. And, and I think as Christians, whether it's grief, whether it's chronic illness, cancer, whether it's enduring experiences of all kinds, um, you know, we really have a lot to learn from Christ about how to walk alongside one another. And the problem that I see is that we often, I'll speak for kind of heterosexual Christians, have the luxury of not asking the questions other fellow Christians have had to ask. We haven't developed a rigorous uh, sexual ethic for ourselves that's demanding. Um, we have mm. uh, some privilege in that. And and I think we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard than we do. I think we need to name and acknowledge the ways that we've kind of <laughs> softened our own understanding of what it means to be virtuous sexually in order to then ever invite somebody else into a sexual ethic that's demanding. If we cannot suffer <laughs> and if we don't know how to do that and if we feel exempt from that, we have no grounds of asking somebody else to suffer. I really think it's in vivo. How do I live a life of embracing my own crosses um, and, and find ways to glorify God in that? Um, it's in doing that that it compels other people to do the same. And our witness is critical. That's what we want to talk about in the book is let's stop talking about those people. Let's stop isolating them and acting as if activists in our culture are the problem. You know, I'm grateful for activists insofar as they've raised awareness to the ways those among us have been really marginalized. And we have got to start caring about that. And many Christians don't. And I hope more tend to as time goes on because the consequences are huge. And, you know, some of us are living it. Some of us are exempt from it. Either way, we got to rally um, and be the body of Christ for one another. Definitely. And finally, wrapping this up then, how do you think, um, I was thinking, especially as you were talking about loneliness, how there are, um, there are side beers in mixed orientation marriages who might feel lonely even within their marriage, that they can't, um, relate this important thing to their spouse or their spouse can't quite understand, but also just in our culture at large, you know, I have, sure. heter I obviously have heterosexual parents who, um, who don't know and can't understand right now. And we're trying to make 
progress there. But what would you, what advice would you have to people who are maybe on the outside who are not um, a sexual minority themselves, but how they might reach out to people who are particularly vulnerable to loneliness? Mm. Yes. Um, <laughs> honestly, the easiest thing to say is be quiet and listen. Um, you know, no trite answers, no easy solutions. Be quiet and listen. Um, we have so much to learn from one another in the pains of life, especially loneliness. But be an attentive listener. You know, make other people's difficulties your difficulties and don't go to sleep if you know <laughs> that somebody in your life is feeling the isolation of loneliness and has no one to talk to about that. And one of the most powerful things somebody said in the dissertation research to me was, you know, I just get sick of eating alone. <laughs> I get sick of sitting alone. I get sick of trying to figure out how the heck am I going to move my new fridge in because I can't carry it. Party of one, like, um, yeah. and, and feeling like a burden to others. And, and until we as fellow Christians make other people's quote unquote problems, other people's difficulties are felt difficulties. Um, we will not be able to support one another well. Um, you know, compassion is to suffer with. It's not to point at suffering and say that's hard. It's to say, if you're suffering, I'm suffering. And I want to help you deal with that. You know, I, as a single person, I live with a family. Um, and they have made me feel like I am their family. They let me do dishes. They let me help out. And they help me. <laughs> in ways that I can't even begin to appreciate. But if the nuclear family does not start to reach out to single people, does not start to reach out to people in mixed orientation marriages and say, we want to walk alongside you. We want to know what it's like. We don't want the sugar-coated version. We want the real joys, the real sorrows. You know, we're going to really, really struggle as, as a body to, to help people encounter Jesus. Um, and so I would just say, get in there, <laughs> get in the mix, make other people's difficulties, your difficulties. And if you have the privilege of having ways to alleviate loneliness, like children, like a, a spouse to hug, become that and, and share that uh, with other people. Invite people into family dinner, invite people in um, to your daily struggles in life so that we don't have such a idolized view of marriage as if it's this great way to alleviate loneliness. Um, and that requires vulnerability on the part of people who otherwise might like to create an image that everything's good for them. So that's what I would say about that. We are uniting the body of Christ up in here. Well, anyways, <laughs> Dr. Sadusky, thank you so, so much for joining us. You are so incredibly well-spoken. My mind is blown. Um, oh, thank you. So thank you so much for being uh, here with us. That's all the time we have for our podcast today. Be here for our next topic on victimization and love to everyone there. Have the great rest of your day. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Thanks again to Dr. Sadesky for joining us. If you're interested in getting in contact with her, her information will be listed in the show notes. Also, as we talked about counselors, if you are interested in finding a Side B friendly counselor but not sure where to start, there is a list of some Side B friendly counselors and counseling services in the show notes as well. Even if there is not one in your area, many of them provide long distance services. 
Finally, I also want to acknowledge that we discussed some heavy topics today, including suicidality. If that is something you are experiencing, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. The number is listed in the show notes. Or if you already have a therapist in your life, do not hesitate to contact them. Your life matters. Life on Side B is hosted and produced by yours truly, and our theme song is Driven to Success by Scott Holmes. Also, if you love this podcast, support us and help us continue by becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash lifeonsideb. Thanks, everyone, and see you next time.